everyone. Welcome to another episode of Eyes on Earth. This is a podcast that focuses on our ever-changing planet and on the people here at Eros and across the globe who use remote sensing to monitor and study the health of Earth. I'm your host, Steve Young. Today's guest is Matt Hansen, a professor in the Department of Geographical Sciences at the University of Maryland in College Park. Matt is a remote sensing scientist whose research specializes in large area land cover and land use change mapping. His research involves developing improved algorithms, data inputs, and thematic outputs, which enable the mapping of land cover change at regional, continental, and global scales. Matt's work contributes to the management of natural resources, looking at such things as deforestation and biodiversity monitoring. On top of that, Matt's exhaustive mining of the Global Landsat Archive has led to a greater understanding of global land cover change, global forest gains and losses, annual agricultural monitoring, and many other issues. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Let's start at the beginning. What made you pursue a career as a remote sensing researcher and an expert in the geographic aspects of global land change? I was an engineer undergrad. I did Peace Corps. I was a fish farmer, fish aquaculture extension agent in uh, Zaire. And I came back from that and I had a blank slate. The geographers hate when I say that I, I love maps. That's why I'm a geographer. But that's basically the idea that uh, spatial representations of our world are really attractive to me. And they, they make a lot of sense and they answer a lot of questions. And obviously, if we look at them over time, we can see where we're going. I uh, went to the local university and talked about getting a master's in geography, and in that, I took one remote sensing course, and with that course, I was able to start my career getting a job at the University of Maryland after I graduated. So your early research involved mapping studies using data from the daily global polar orbiting satellites, such as AVH, RR, and MODIS. You gradually moved to large area studies using Landsat and other multi-resolution imagery. What sparked this shift? AVHR and MODIS, with the daily acquisitions and consistent records, you could extrapolate algorithms very easily or comparatively easily across the globe. So that, that was like a workbench with these really big blurry pixels. And most of those products, because they were big and blurry, were mainly for big uh, climate models. The reason we didn't work with Landsat was data limitations, data cost, compute. But NASA Pathfinder program had a tropical deforestation project. And it had a node at the University of Maryland. I wasn't working on it. But out of the Pathfinder program, this was, was these great results with Landsat. In the Amazon, you have a dry season where you get a single good look every year and you can map deforestation. But you can't do that in the Congo. Scale change is very small. Cloud cover is persistent. And so we had to start thinking about how we processed AVHR and MODIS data, apply those methods to Landsat. Because you have to start compositing. You have to look at each pixel and say, is that a cloud? Is that a shadow? Is that haze? Throw it away. Look for another one. So it becomes this more data-intensive approach as opposed to single images. In the early 2000s, we begged and borrowed and got several hundred, 300, 400 images over the Congo Basin, started processing these data per pixel using the methods that we had developed, AVHR and MODIS, and voila, we could, we could map all of the forest loss across the country like Democratic Republic of Congo, the second largest rainforest country in the world. The shift really was about, you know, a particular context, the tropical rainforests of the world and how important they are, them being the site of huge changes in, in, in land use. And so in that context, we got into the, to the per pixel Landsat monitoring and we published our first large area map 
at the time of the opening of the Landsat archive in 2008, we, we had just published uh, first results. So we were ready, absolutely, to go with Landsat at scale based on that experience. In, in your investigations of global land change, are there any surprises that have changed the way you think about the state of the earth? It seems like our appropriation of land, either to convert it from a natural land cover to a land use or to intensify existing land uses, appears inexorable. I mean, we're really efficient at squeezing out economic productivity out of the land. And I guess that's sort of surprising, maybe not, but it's, uh, it's remarkable. One of the big challenges is, you know, how much of that can the, can the planet sustain without, you know, feedbacks like climate change from the emissions of tropical forest burning or water quality degradation due to, you know, intensification of, of agricultural landscapes and the like. I think that's the biggest surprise is how industrious we are, <laughs> I guess, in terms of uh, taking economic advantage of land. I'm told you have contributed many innovations that are now common in the land remote sensing community, including continuous vegetation fields, global scale applications, multi-resolution monitoring, cloud computing, and the blending of sampling and wall-to-wall -wall mapping to quantify land surface characteristics. Of these many firsts, which one or ones are you most proud of? I really like working at the global scale. There's no uh, global government. You know, the United Nations is the only, let's say, agency or bureaucracy responsible for, for global information. But it's a member organization, so each country submits their data separately, and then the UN has to shoehorn them. The great thing about the satellite is that it's taking the same picture with the same calibration across uh, around the globe, and so you can really track global resources in a very consistent way if you're a civil servant you have a geography a set geography that you're that you're you know responsible for so i think uh, i think the global scale is really something that we've gotten good at processing we process the entire landsat archive in our lab we're up to over 20 petabytes of storage it's high access storage you know we built this for purpose so i'm really proud of like the infrastructure and our capability to map the globe um, and more recently, this idea of sampling. You know, we were very happy to make maps at the very beginning. Now, with our sampling, which is more into the idea that we use the the maps as a as a targeting mechanism to actually estimate areas with with uh, statistical uncertainties. Wow! Now we're cooking. Now we've got definitive information. So I really do like that as well. So you're well known for the marathon road trips you make annually that support your various monitoring studies. Why do you put so much emphasis on field observation and how do these trips improve the quality of your research? Well, there's no question that if you do remote sensing and all you do is sit at a desk, you're missing something. I am more and more convinced that the map is a point of departure. You have to go to the field for certain things. When I talk about it being a targeting mechanism, if we're going to do soybean across the United States or across Brazil, you are going to have cultivars that are confused with it. And, and you cannot resolve that at the desk. When you have dry beans, sometimes peanuts, sometimes cotton, that with all the different planting dates and interannual variability, you cannot nail soybeans sitting at your desk. You can do a very good job of targeting it, but when you go to the field, you can, with your eyes, say soy, soy, soy. And, and the idea of the, of the map as a targeting mechanism means that we can do this very efficiently. We can go to the field in two weeks, have a national estimate. I have a, I have a postdoc who does did winter wheat in Punjab, Pakistan, 
by himself in two weeks. Well, he had a partner, sorry, two guys. They get a, a Punjab, which is, you know, the, the, the main, the breadbasket of Pakistan. They get an estimate for which they, they have a couple thousand enumerators at village level doing it officially. But they do it by themselves because they know where to look. The satellite tells them where to go. So there's a couple things. One is it's great feedback to help you understand what you're looking at in the imagery, but it's also the deal in terms of um, really targeting your theme of interest and getting precise estimates. I'd even go further in saying that the satellite will tell us where intact habitats are. The satellite tells us where the tall forests are. We cannot easily kludge together existing networks of field data that are a lot of times not placed statistically in landscapes, but they're quite biased. The satellite could give us a, a construct with which to target a whole host of critical variables that we could then visit in situ. So it's a big deal, the, the field work. There are some cases where you don't need it, but a lot, a lot, a lot where you do. So what can you tell us about what you're working on right now? We are always trying to push the envelope with new data, trying to go down in spatial scale. So you could say Lance at 30 meters, Sentinel 10, 20 meters, Planet 3 meters. And it's all really the same processing on our side. We're doing these optical time series. And so we can get better and better. I think the biggest deal is really the effect that, that our work is having on policy and you know management of natural resources. I find it increasingly frustrating that you know we have ongoing emphases on technology but, you know, Brazil affected a policy that slowed their deforestation from almost 30,000 square kilometers per year down to below 5,000 square kilometers with a single Landsat, Landsat 5. Landsat 5 was the instrument with which they quantified the huge rate of deforestation. And when they put in their policy to kind of balance development with the protection of ecosystem services, Landsat 5 was the evidence for their success. So I think, you know, aside from what I'm working on now and my personal curiosities, I'm a little discouraged that our data are not really being used to more regularly inform and support policy uh, like the one instance in Brazil. No other country's done what Brazil has done, and uh, Brazil itself has been backsliding since that success. My whole focus now is really how, how relevant can we be? You know, we, we, we have a close, we can be a closed shop and, you know, pat each other on the back on really cool things we're doing, but it's more about what is the material impact on society. So may I take out your crystal ball and share some of your ideas on future trends in global land remote sensing? Global land remote sensing, I mean, if I were in charge, <laughs> it would really be at the top of, of a lot of important themes. I would try to do a more top-down approach. I, I alluded to this before. I think land change is the big one and understanding the impacts of land change on environmental systems and human systems is the biggest deal. One of the interesting things for the, for the future is to what degree can we put ourselves out of business? You know, if you're in research, you want to do research to operations. Operations means it just runs and we're solving problems and we're supporting uh, decisions. That means we've solved some problems methodologically. So I think a really important trend that I would like to see is that we solve some problems and we move out of R&D for some basic monitoring tasks. The other future trend, which I think is up in the air right now, it's the idea of whether or not we need people with geographic backgrounds or we just need computer programmers. This is a point of contention with me where a machine learning 
computer programmer can outsource, let's say, calibration of a model and just run map making processes without really being geographically knowledgeable and understanding whether or not the map is expressed in front of him or her makes sense. So I think when you talk about deep learning and who's in charge of algorithms, who's running algorithms and producing information products, is it going to be people with no geographic background at all or are geographers going to be in charge? I think geographers are still needed. There's an iterative active learning process to mapping that I think is still required and you have to have geographers to troubleshoot the input data inputs and also to critique the outputs and iterate and that's the active learning side of it. So this is in the future trends. I'm very curious which path it goes down. I feel like domain experts in geography of knowing environments and knowing drivers and putting them into landscapes and understanding that is critical to making maps. But conversely, you know, maybe there are algorithms smart enough that with training that is outsourced, you can do the same thing at the same level of accuracy. Well, I know you're a member of the USGS NASA Landsat Science Team. So what I wonder is, what do you consider to be the priorities for improving the value of the nearly 50-year-old Landsat archive? MODIS, to me, was, all, was a fantastic model because MODIS built all of these gridded, different composite time series that were ready off the shelf for users. And I think uh, Landsat Science Team is working towards that, this idea of analysis-ready data modeled, I think, really on the MODIS approach. One of the tricks with Landsat that we face when we're doing our long time series uh, studies is the tension between continuity and improving the observations themselves in terms of quality. Because the Landsat's instruments themselves are slightly different. The strength of Landsat is the time series. It is our baseline. This is what we will use as a reference to compare what's going to happen now into the future. I'm strongly in an advocate for continuity, that the observations don't get so far off of a standard that you can't compare them. That being said, you, you can't resist, you know, it's, it's hard to resist improving your technology, right? So I think this is this is a challenge. What what do we do to maintain the ability to integrate the entire time series so that we can track the dynamics? I mean, for me, Landsat is a piece of global public infrastructure. There are very few things, you know. Of course, you can uh, talk about um, GPS and and a few other you know systems like our Navy is keeps the ocean trading lanes free and open. So there there are examples of global public goods that individual countries pay for and everybody benefits. Landsat's one of those, and I think that's just such a great gift, and we need to maintain that. It is great to have a bunch of people looking at the same data and working on the same problems at different scales, different time periods, maybe different themes, but this is how we come to consensus and we solve problems. We've been talking to Matt Hansen, a professor in the Department of Geographical Sciences at the University of Maryland and a remote sensing scientist whose research has given the world a much better understanding of large area land cover and land use change mapping. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. We hope you come back for the next episode of Eyes on Earth. This podcast is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey, Department of the Interior.